You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole, coming at you live from Gotham City. Uh, If you hear sirens in the background, I apologize. Batman is on the prowl, and I am here with none other than the 602 Club's Catwoman. Selena Kyle. (laughs) It's funny, we read each other's mind. (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, I was just going with those made-up names. You know, we're using, oh, we're using our pretend names today. It's uh, it's Spider-Man would say in Infinity War. So So, because of the glasses, does that make you the Riddler? No, I'm going to go with Clark Kent. So I'm going to go with Clark Kent on this one. He's not in this movie. No, he's not. But um, (laughs) I don't really want to be a creepy, psychopathic, serial murdering weirdo. So, And with us in this weird world of Gotham, Scott McClellan. Uh, to what? World's two greatest detectives. The Wobble Espanol. <laughs> oh my god. You don't know the difference between L and Law. Uh, what oh, Spanish so I ever heard. <laughs> so good at this movie. It's basically like the second coming of Robert De Niro. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Or um I kept thinking of Joe Pesci. Oh, That's like who I thought fellas. it was at first. <laughs> Yeah, there's some yeah. there's some of that too. There's some of that too. It's it's almost like they had a baby, which is weird. <laughs> um, but uh, mm-hmm. well, before we get to talking about the Batman, uh, we want to thank everybody for listening. Of course, you know you could find us wherever you get your podcasts. So wherever that is, please subscribe, and you'll get the shows as soon as they drop. This and as well as the bonus shows we do. Uh, you will also uh, want to give us a star rating review if you can on those so those outlets, especially like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate that. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at the Six Hundred Two Club, and then we're also on Instagram at the Six Hundred Two Club TFM. You could also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm with the entire network and listeners-only discussion group where you can talk to listeners from all over the world. And, of course, last but not least, you can go over to trek.fm as well and see all of the podcasts that we're doing. Plus, if you like what we do here, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and support the network. We could really use your help here as we continue to dive further into 2022. Uh, We've got some really big plans for the network, but we do need your help. So if you like what we do here, go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can become part of the team. I think we need to get this out of the way before we even really start talking about this movie. It's just the idea of more Batman. Um, I would say Batman might be the most oversaturated character in all of film when it comes to comic book characters. And this movie has an interesting history because, you know, Scott, you're of course well aware of you with, uh, what you guys do over there at Squadcast, and you, you know, this was supposed to be Affleck's movie <laughs> and that didn't pan out. Um, and Reeves comes in, ends up doing his own thing. It's not even connected to the DCEU anymore. 
Um, and so I just wanted to ask both of you before coming into this movie, how were you feeling? Was that something you were okay with? Did you care? Where were you? It's Batman. Just give me Batman. I don't, you know, I, you know, I, there is this sentiment, at least all on social media. It was like, I think I need a Batman break. I think I'm getting too much Batman. I'm like, okay, give your helping over here to me because you know I'll I, I'll take all the Batman. Like I, he's my favorite character. I I don't think it is physically possible for me ever to get tired of my favorite character, especially in a year when. I'm going to get like five different Batman. I mean, literally like five because I mean, I'm going to get Pattinson and Keanu Reeves and Affleck and Keaton. And I'm probably missing a Batman somewhere. And it's like, I don't care. You know, just give me all the Batman. And, you know, when Affleck stepped down and Reeves took over and then when we've and then when. I mean, the writing was on the wall that Affleck wasn't going to actually end up being in this movie after he stepped down from being the director. And then as I started to hear Reeves talk about it, it I've I've been legitimately excited for this movie, you know, for almost five years. Like it's been like the amount that Reeves hasn't told us about this movie worked because it was like I never got tired of it because he never told you anything. <laughs> And the things that he did tell you just tantalized me even more. I'm like, ooh, noir, detective story, long Halloween, Batman ego. Oh, Matt, tell me more. So I I, 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 I am not a person who will ever get tired of the Batman. Give me more Batman. And especially when you give me different versions of Batman, I'll take them all and I'll appreciate them all. That's just who I am. That's awesome. Um, I would say I'm with you, although he's not my favorite character. I've loved him my whole life. And uh, I think that there's not enough Batman ever. Just there's so much material to pull from. Um, And I'm glad that you mentioned the long Halloween, because that was something that I thought was so great about Reeves coming in and doing this is that he was a fan of the Batman comics and knew more about how he wanted to pull from the comics to make this story. Um, along with Craig, and it came from Year One, Hush, and The Long Halloween. And those are stories of Batman that I like. Um, and I love the relationship between Batman and Catwoman in some of this. Um, so yeah, for me, it was more about the casting that I was concerned about, because I think with anybody, especially when you love a character like Batman, Spider-Man, things like that, that are, you know, lots of different actors play them every time you're a little hesitant about a new person taking over and if it's going to live up to your standards of what you think the character should be. And so I was even the day of walking into the movie with my husband, I was like, I just, I don't know if he can do this. And I, you know, we'll see, maybe I was wrong. You know, it, it's funny. And I, I totally understand your sentiment, Scott. And I think I was a little frustrated um, you know, it, it when all of the stuff was happening, you know, and you know, I didn't like you. I was, I'm just, a, I was a huge fan of Affleck's Batman, and I just wanted to see more of that character. And in, in, in much the same way that you know, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Cavill's Superman. I want to see more of that character, the way it's being portrayed there, because I think it's interesting and worth, you know, being able to explore more. But, you know. 
one, I like Matt Reeves as a director. His Planet of the Apes movies were fantastic. He did Cloverfield. And Cloverfield. Yeah, he's done some really good stuff, you know, and especially with his work with apes, I thought, oh my gosh, there's a director that could come into the Batman universe and create something that hasn't been seen before. I think he could do it. So that was one. And then, you know, you're I, I'm right there with you, Scott. You know, when the the things that Matt Reeves was giving us, talking about a little bit about his inspirations, talking a little bit about his thought process behind the, what this story would kind of be like, which is more detective based Batman and more kind of a noir Batman. I was like, okay, I'm in, in that sense. And so, and I think the thing about this is, is that you can continually give new movies and new takes on characters if they're good, right? Like it's really not so much that, oh, we've had say too many Spider-Man movies, right? It's like, well, maybe it's not really about the amount of movies. Maybe it's about the quality of the movies. And when you give people mm-hmm. quality, I think that's really what ends up mattering. And so coming into this, I did expect quality, though, because I know what Matt Reeves is capable of when it comes to him as a director. And so I was, you know, like you, Scott, this one of my most anticipated movies in, in the last few years. I've, I've been waiting for this film to come out. And... Maybe we should just get to it. Christy, you mentioned the idea of Pattinson as the Batman. So what is our verdict on his take on this quintessential comic book character? I think that they, after seeing the tone of the way the movie went, I think that they picked the right person after all, Um, which was hard for me to admit. I was wrong, (laughs) but I was at least this once. No one's, nobody's perfect. (laughs) Um, Right. <laughs> um, but he, he had the the frame for it um, body wise and his jaw and everything looked right in the mask. But also he just is good at kind of playing that more broody character. Um, and I think that he got across the torment of Batman better than, you know, maybe Kilmer or Clooney. <laughs> um, I feel like he really gets across that he's he's at first not really accepting that he feels like he's not making an impact, but he keeps trying and feels like all he's doing is spinning his wheels. Um, And I, I like that it doesn't lean into the romance too much that is showing that he's a character in this movie that's gone through so much in the, in this moment that um, he is not as capable of just then letting go and trusting someone, especially when he's seen some things to the contrary, um, with Selena wondering if he can trust her at all. So, I, yeah, I, I was happy with it. Um, I think that there's some things that at times felt a little too emo, I guess I'm going to call it. <laughs> but overall, I think that he was the right choice. Well, for me, I, you know, I was never hard on the casting choice of Pattinson only because, seriously. I lived through Keaton. I lived through Ledger. I lived through Affleck. I mean, at some point, you have to go, 
guys, 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 every time you, like, throw a hissy fit, every time someone new gets cast in a role and you just don't see it, maybe it's because you just don't see it, and, and, like, and, and, like, it's gotten to the point that every time I feel like people have hyperbolically, no, Christy, you can express concerns, and that can be completely legitimate, but I'm talking about the people who, like, oh my god, like, go put your big boy pants on and, and, and grow up. And, and like, and oh, just like yeah. have this, just just freak out. It's like, guys, how many times have we sat through this where we, where you guys freak out about something and then we see the movie and then we're like, goat. Like, you know, greatest thing ever. And I, so when I saw Pattinson's cast, I was like, okay, cool. Let's see what he can do. Because I, at that moment, when he was cast, had not spent my time watching his 10 years worth of like A24 indie work. And I made sure that after he was cast that I at least sampled some of that, you know, and I, I saw the lighthouse in theaters and I, and I bought high life. And so I started watching this indie work. And especially after watching, you know, that I was like, no, dude's been putting in the work. No. So like, so I had like no issues that he could, he could pull in a Batman. It was just a question of what was this Batman going to be? And then seeing it, you know, like, okay, so he was eight or nine in 2001. So we're putting him at about 28, 29 ish for, for this Bruce Wayne Batman. He's only in year two. He hasn't developed the Bruce Wayne persona yet because he is just young and angry. And, so the Bruce Wayne, the Batman, not really much of a difference in this movie. And I think that's intentional. You know, some people want to decry it as a criticism. I say, I think it's the point. And then to watch the, and to watch Pattinson have to do what, frankly, no other actor who's ever played Batman has been asked to do, which is for a two-hour, 55-minute movie, spend 85 to 90% of that screen time in the suit. I mean, there. I mean, dollars for donuts, no Batman actor has had to be Batman for as long in his movie as Pattinson was asked to be Batman. I joked it's easier to clock how long he's Bruce Wayne than it is to clock how long he's Batman. And I think that's, as far as Batman movies go, I consider that an achievement. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I know, obviously, his reputation with Twilight. I think everybody just immediately kind of jumped on that. And like you, Scott, I had seen him do other things. You know, I saw The Lighthouse. I don't love that movie very much, but he's incredible in it. And and so is Willem Dafoe. They're both incredible actors and the performance they give. Especially after seeing that movie, I was like, oh, he can totally do this. Right. Um, after seeing Tenet, he's so charming. You know, like, and so that lets me know that when, you know, they do the second film in this series, it's going to, they're going to give them another one. He's, he's going to be able to pull off the Bruce Wayne because he's so freaking charming in Tenet. Like he can do both sides. He could do brooding, but he can also be the guy that you want to spend all your time with, you know? And so, um, I'm, I was all on board for this and, and I think, 
he is phenomenal in the role. And and mainly, I think one of the things that you brought up there, Scott, and I think is absolutely 100% correct, is that this movie is not about Bruce Wayne in that sense. It is about the person who has abdicated any part of being Bruce Wayne to the detriment of himself, his city, uh, into being Batman and seeing that that's the only legitimate aspect of his life, or at least him thinking that's the only legitimate aspect of his life. And therefore, he has basically let that part of his life die. In fact, there's actually some, I think, reference in many ways to uh, some of the the threads you kind of had in the DCEU version where, you know, Alfred is wanting Bruce to get out there and live his life, and Bruce wants none of it, right? This is absolutely the epitome of that there is no bruce wayne really um he's he's killed it and and that part of himself and i think the beauty of that is that this whole movie and scott you were alluding to this which it 100 i think accurate is that's the point of him learning that not being bruce wayne is and that neglect of that half has actually led to many of the problems that we see in Gotham because he has not lived up to the responsibility and the legacy of what it means to be a Wayne. And inadvertently, that's made him somewhat responsible for the fact that there's absolutely no oversight of the project, the renewal project, that everybody is taking advantage of in turning this city into a cesspool of deception and lies. And And corruption. Exactly. And so... I think that is masterfully done in this movie, and Pattinson is right in the well, middle of it. And you talked about, you know, the living up to the legacy of being a Wayne. And that has traditionally been like the path of a Batman character. It's like Thomas and Martha were these were these like cherubs, per- perfect parents. You know, they were the they were the saints of the city, and they get murdered, and then everything just goes to hell after that. And he has to he has to learn that being Batman and being Bruce Wayne is about honoring that legacy. What I thought was interesting what Matt Reeves did by incorporating the Elseworlds aspect from the Earth One graphic novels, which makes the yep. change yep. that Martha was an Arkham and not Martha Kane. Mm-hmm. I and then adding in that twist about. Maybe Thomas didn't intentionally get that reporter killed, but you can still say that Thomas was responsible for that reporter getting killed. And what I think makes that interesting twist now is that not only does Bruce need to become Bruce Wayne, it's not to fulfill the legacy. It's not to honor the legacy. In this universe, it's like he needs to become Bruce Wayne to fix the legacy. It's like, I actually need to correct Mm -hmm. what my parents did. And I think that going forward in future films is a whole other can of worms that I'm personally really interested to watch. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I loved that twist. I like that they have him then go through that torment of he's thinking the entire time, the whole reason he started down this path of being Batman, and then it's completely turned on its head. And now he's got to deal with where to go from there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I loved that. 
Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you, Scott. I mean, obviously, this is very heavily influenced in a lot of ways by the Earth One. Um, you've got the the same type of Alfred, um, which is great. Uh, I love that take in Alfred, which they also kind of use in Gotham. Yeah, very much bit. so in Gotham. Um, and if and of course, it also feels like it could be uh, the Pennyworth you see in that show, right? Like that was his legacy. Um, and then incorporating this whole idea of this legacy of Gotham itself as a city with the Waynes, with the Arkhams, which also leads me into the, well, please God, let the Court of Owls come to fruition sometime in this series, which I think would be a great finale to the series. Uh, maybe have your second villain actually be Hush, which in the end is being controlled. Anyway, that's a whole, that that's a totally different podcast. But I just, I really think that, like you said, Scott, adding all of this slight tweaking to the origin story of Batman and allowing him to experience different things for the reason that he's Batman, for the reason that he um, needs to actually be Bruce Wayne, you know, and what that will mean for the series, I think is really good. This is the type of thing that you want, right, when it comes to legitimizing making a new version of the character in a new film. This is exactly what you want. You don't just want to be retreading things that we've already seen. You want to be giving us a reason to why this character should exist alongside all of the other people who played Batman. And... I think what was really interesting, too, is just in some ways, this movie follows almost the arc that you get no one's Batman going through in three movies, but in one. That basically vengeance is not enough. Like, he has to be more, you know, and it's the, you know, in in The Dark Knight Rises when Batman is literally in the broad daylight fighting on the, the steps of, of the city hall with the entire city, he's become a symbol of something so much more than fear. It's hope. Uh, And that's what this Batman learns, too, is that vengeance is not enough, especially when he sees that vengeance mirrored in the attackers at, you know, Gotham Garden Center. You know, it's... He sees that this is vengeance can only get you so far. And in the end, it's a dish best served cold, as the Klingons would say, because it doesn't satisfy and it doesn't actually really do any good. This city deserves more. And so he's been the Batman that they deserve, but he needs to become the Batman they need. And I think that's a really cool thing yeah. that they did that entire arc in one film. Yeah, I, I, for me, the big thing about this movie was that and um, that they show it so, sort of from the quote that's pretty famous of that the one who seeks vengeance dig mm-hmm. two graves. Because ultimately, it doesn't make things better. It still doesn't erase the reason that you want the vengeance in the first place. You just think it's going to give you some kind of closure, and it never will. And I love that he even has that moment telling Selena, you know, taking the gun out of her hand and saying, killing your father because of what he did to your mother is not going to bring her back. It's not going to make you feel better once he's dead. 
So I, I love that they also went that route of showing how I felt about Batman before was that Batman can hurt people and he can show them who's boss in the situation. But in this in this film, I don't recall him actually killing anyone. Um, and that's something that means something to me because, you know, ever since I became a fan of his, you know, I feel like that's been his thing because of what happened with his parents. Yeah. And it really is the first cinematic Batman who either does not directly or inadvertently kill somebody over the course of the movies. Cause it happened with Keaton, Kilmer, Nolan, Snyder. Like they, they all, it, it's happened in all of those either by either by mm-hmm. neglect or by intention or whatever. So it is, it is once again, we're getting something different cinematically with this Batman than we've gotten ever before. And his entire arc in this film what the one thing that kept on, I mean, literally it popped in my brain when I watched the movie the first time is I always think of Darwin Cook's The New Frontier that has that great moment towards the beginning when Batman's saving this child from this cult. And after he beats the absolute snot out of these cult members, he goes to save the kid and the kid's like, get away from me. And and he's and he's shocked by the kid's reaction. So that later on in the series, when Darwin Cook then draws him looking like his 50s version instead of his 40s version, where he had, you know, shorter ears and a smile and had the, like the yellow oval and stuff. And he's got Robin next to him. And Superman looks at him and goes, new look. And he goes, I didn't get into the scare kids. And so that moment in Darwin Cook's New Frontier makes me think of this movie because he beats the snot out of those punks on the on the L train and then the guy he's saving is like don't hurt me and he's just looking at him and he doesn't say anything he just looks at him still angry almost like it's like why would you think I would hurt you as you glower at him terrifyingly and then you get to the end where the kid is the one person who will take his hand to get out of Gotham Square Gardens. And then there's the woman that they're putting into the airlift who's like clinging to him for all her life. She doesn't want to let him go. And that's all I could think of was you didn't get into this to scare kids. And I I love that being, you know, such a big part of Batman's arc in this film. Mm -hmm. Well, and I was also thinking as you were talking, it just, you know, in the beginning of the movie, he says that he is the shadows. And I think what he learns is that the light chases away the shadows and he needs to basically be the one casting the light um, that this city has an, has had enough shadows and it's time to bring it all into the light, which, you know, obviously plays into all of the <laughs> other thematic elements that we get in the movie, especially with Riddler. But I think that's the beauty of the film is that the journey that we go on with specifically the Batman and with the Riddler is the fact that the Riddler isn't necessarily all wrong in the end. Yeah. But I mean, his whole thing is somewhat understandable because he's trying to expose the corruption of Gotham and say no more lies and things that we in reality think are wrong about some of our own politicians. You know, it's something that people could understand and see how the Riddler could start down the path he gets to maybe, you know, 
not see where he ended up with it. <laughs> he went way off the deep end. But it makes sense at first how the thought process started. Well, especially when, I mean, I was a little spoiled. I don't even consider it spoiled. I just felt like I was um, informed a little bit because I did read the junior prequel novel that they published like a month before the movie came out. And Edward is all throughout that. Like it, it, it's like this parallel prequel journey of what Bruce is going through and what Edward's going through, like when they're 17 and just this idea of what Edward's upbringing was like at the orphanage and how that really tied him into this idea of the Waynes and the elite and what they have done to him. I, it makes him, it makes him one of those uncomfortable villains because you sit back and go, he kind of has a point, you know, and there's something I love about those villains that you stop and go, why do I kind of agree with him if he wasn't just so cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? <laughs> you know, it's in, and, and those are some of my mm-hmm. favorite villains are the ones where I go, I see where you're coming from, man. I get it. I don't get the thumb drive part, <laughs> but this guy's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. See, I think, you know, you both have really good points. And I think that's one of the things is that, you know, the Riddler and Batman, they make good mirrors for each other and their upbringings, and the, the way things went for them and the choices then that they made in light of those things. Right. Because in many ways, they both have. You know, Bruce grew up with money, but he still has this anger and pain and rage that could have allowed him to go into that kind of like anarchist, almost Antifa-like feeling that you get of what the Riddler does, right? Where it's like, everything is so broken, we just got to tear it all down. And honestly, I don't really care what replaces it. Maybe just anarchy. You know, like that's that's where he is as a character, which is awesome terrifying you know as being somebody who lives in a place that has been terrorized by people like that over and over and over again for hundreds of nights on end um it's scary you know and i think Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that made the riddler such an uncomfortable villain is that in many ways we've seen around the world many places being terrorized by people like this who have just they are so unhinged with reality that anarchy for them is the only answer we will burn it all down Mm -hmm. and and in some ways it kind of reminds me of that idea in the dark knight where alfred talks about men who just want to watch the world burn and kind of that's Mm -hmm. where the riddler is he does just want to work watch the world burn he and he wants to be the one to burn it all down and take everybody that he feels like deserves it with him but he's crazy in the sense that he's also willing to take everybody else in this city with him you know like when he floods it how many people die that don't have anything to do with the problems in Gotham. They're just people trying to make it like he was. Well, but unless he's reached that unhinged part where he thinks they're all part of the problem. You know, they're... they're Which absolutely could well, be. Because you get, you get to that mm-hmm. point where you see everyone, every, almost everyone is guilty because you've all 
propagated the system. You've all participated in the system in some way. So you reach that delusional part where there are no innocents. Or you just think the world is so terrible that if I do get rid of you, I'm doing you a favor. Like if you've if you've if you've honestly mm-hmm. gone that far and I feel like when you watch Paul Dano's performance, especially in that interrogation scene at Arkham, I, I think that's the scene where you go. Uh, the lights are on, but nobody's home. And I mean, I like, too, that they show even when Batman is trying to put together what the plan is and finally figures out to use the rug cutter um, and peel up the carpet. Um, The video where they're showing that um, Riddler had posted online, it's showing the chat and it zooms in on some of the people that are supporting him. It is like a mirror of some things that have happened in real life of how far people will go when they're feeling like the person they're following is right. And that they're, you know, shopping for the same mask he has. They're talking about, you know, what they're going to wear, where they're going to meet. They say rifles are cool. Like, you know, they want to be just like him and they're willing to go out and do his bidding. So it's not even just him. That's the problem anymore. Now he's got an army, which is also (laughs) scary because you listen to what the the guy who's credited as bitter nobody and you listen to the Riddler in Arkham and then there's this sick dominoes where they were inspired by the Batman, which plays into the arc that he's on because he realizes this wasn't the mission. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think both of you are absolutely correct. And again, you know. In 2020 and 2021, if you'd come and visit Portland on any night, you would have seen this happen every night. So, like, and it absolutely is pulling from the headlines. And I think that's what's so scary. Um, And I think that's the beauty of what the Riddler does is it shows Batman and Bruce the end result like if you take it to the furthest end of what he's doing the idea of vengeance this is where you get right you just get to Mm -hmm. this crazy point where there is no nothing worth holding on to you know it just kind of leads you down a path of crazy or not or nihilism where nothing matters yeah exactly a hundred percent so then it all that matters is just kind of creating anarchy you know, which is yeah. is in many ways like where you get with the Joker, right? Like the Joker being that ultimate nihilist who's just, yeah, I I just w- I have fun watching the world burn. I'm just going to enjoy it, you know, and mm-hmm. that's what I get my kicks. That's how I get my kicks, you know. So yeah, it's and and Paul Dano is, I mean, he's an excellent actor. Obviously, you know, was so good in something like uh, There Will Be Blood. Uh, he is legitimately one of the creepiest actors out there in the sense of he just be- can become unhinged like none, none other. And he was fantastic in this role of the Riddler, which, you know, until recently, Jim Carrey was the one who comes to mind. And that was that was not good. <laughs> I will say he's the best Riddler I've yeah. seen. Well, and and, and and even Carrey was just like an updated version of what um 
Frank Gorshin yep. was doing in the 66 series. Because for me, it always, for Riddler, had mm-hmm. always been more of like, you know, John Glover from the animated series. You know, giving me the blazer and the top and, and the bowler and the cane and, and, you know, have some fun because you think you're the smartest man in the room. Well, what made Paul Dano so interesting is that what happens when the you, when you think you're the smartest man in the room and you're Looney Tunes? You know, it's it it's mm-hmm. this is where Matt Reeves's influences from Fincher came in because every time Paul Dano Riddler was on screen, I you know it was like flipping a coin between what am I watching Seven or Zodiac because it was the idea of making Riddler a serial killer was was brilliant because it's almost like you also almost get like an idea of saw which i've never seen i just know the concept but still the idea of i'm going to mentally torment you and i'm gonna make you think you've got a chance and that's what's going to make it even worse is that you think you can actually get yourself out of this but no i'm I'm going to kill you anyway it's funny that you haven't actually seen Saw and drew that similarity because, I mean, I'm thinking of the scene with the guy with the bomb collar on his neck. That's like exactly the same thing from the first Saw movie, except it was on the guy's ankle. And it was, you know, he he, he had to choose between either cutting off his own leg or killing somebody else to get the key. And so, it, you know, it, it was an impossible choice. And it was the same for Batman in that situation. It was, you know, well, he's the only one that's supposed to solve his own riddles. But Batman's still kind of helping him. Um, but in the end, the guy still is willing to die rather than give the the name of the rat. And so Batman can't do anything. So, yeah, yeah, it was that's really cool that you drew that conclusion. So I've had a lot of of people kind of make a lot of the final act of the film and feeling like maybe it's one step too far or it wasn't needed, or those type of things. So, do you both, how do you feel about the Riddler's final plan, and then how that plays out within, you know, the last, you know, 25, 30 minutes of the movie? (laughs) We're both going, no, you. Uh, I I thought it was masterful. I think that it was especially creepy that they have him looking at Batman saying, Oh, you haven't figured it out and singing Ave Maria to him. Oh, it makes it so much worse. But I think it was great that he then relays that he wants them to watch it together. Um, that you, like you said, he literally wants to watch the world burn and he has gone so far down the rabbit hole that he feels like the only way to get rid of all the corruption is to just destroy the entire place altogether. And who cares about what comes after? So, yeah, I thought it was really cool. I think it's, I think the point he talks about was he had felt invisible his entire life. He felt like a nobody. You know, there's this idea of what's the point? And the point is, well, what if I just inspire all these other bitter nobodies to dress up like me? So even though I'm locked up in Arkham, I don't care that I'm locked up in Arkham because my mission is still going to get accomplished. They're all going to be dressed like me. I'm still going to get the credit for cleaning out the city, literally washing it away and making it new 
And even so much so that he's looking at Bella Real, who is legitimately trying to do a good thing as the mayor. And he is just so far gone that he can look, even look at a politician who legitimately is trying to do the best thing. I mean, she goes out there and gets shot because she's like, no, someone has to stand up in this city. And Riddler is just so down his own dark hole that he's like, no, she's just she's just another politician with promises and nothing's going to happen. And so she deserves to die, too. And, and, and for me, will I say the third act is about as comic book movie as this movie gets? Yes. Uh, Tim and I said that la- that fight in the rafters, that feels like it came out of an Arkham game. <laughs> like it's like I should be going X Y B B X Y, you know. It's like, but it doesn't bother me because then it also thematically leads to the fact that Batman's got to be there in front of the whole wide world trying to be a hero, and and it also gives him the opportunity to encounter that bitter nobody, to beat the absolute snot out of him, to realize who this guy is, to have Selena look at him like. Oh boy! Um, oh, you BS crazy! Yeah, exactly, and <laughs> I, I don't understand why people want to. I've heard the complaints about the third act. I just don't agree with them. Like, I think this movie fits mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. wonderfully in all of its glorious two hours and fifty-five minutes. And the. Uh, EpiPen so that he had one last burst of energy. Wink, wink, wink. Like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The EpiPen that I I thought might be something, like, I looked at that going, that's green. Is that what I think it is? Uh I'm not crazy for thinking that, am I? (laughs) This became the Hulk movie, you didn't know? (laughs) That's that's my secret soups. I'm always angry. Um, No, I I thought that Possibly, you know, that could be some sort of, uh, you know, what is it? The venom juice? Yeah, the venom toxin. The, yeah, that's. The, I, I was yeah, like, yeah. I was going there, mm-hmm. going, it's green. He's even got like a port yeah. in his suit. Like he, <laughs> yeah, right. Turns what him into that? the uh, the berserker Batman. So <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know of any adrenaline that makes you into a rage monster. So you know, I don't know. Yeah, unless you're the Hulk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the fact that he has well, a how- port. He uses well, it that I mean, much. How, how else are you going to... I mean, that's freaking body armor. He took a shotgun blast to the chest. How else are you going to get that into you? <laughs> I mean, I thought when you think about thinking things through, I like the forethought that he would have something in the suit. So if he needed something like that, you know, how else is he going to get it into him? And I like the idea that he's got it True. built into the suit, ready to go. You know, I really liked the third act, and I thought it all really made sense as to why, you know, I think everything that both of you said, you know, the, the Riddler whole plan comes down to the fact that it's not about, at this point, him being caught. It's about the fact that he'll be remembered and what he inspired other people to do. And like you said, I mean, it's not subtle in the sense that he wants to wash away the sins of Gotham and, you know, baptize it with seawater. Um, 
mm-hmm. you know, he he's he's not subtle <laughs> in what he's trying to do here. And I think that's what really works because it is also the thing that whole speech there that Mr. Nobody gives to Batman is, I think, the thing that makes him realize when he's, you know, helping up on top of uh, the building there, he must be more. I must become more. And I love that. I, I think that point is only really driven home by that confrontation where he comes face to face with, again, something that he's sort of responsible for by only being vengeance and not being more. And I think it really plays mm-hmm. together well. And, and for a three-hour movie, uh, to be able to to make me feel like, one, not bored the whole time, and two, to like that all of it mattered, I was really happy. The other thing I was really happy with is the fact that Colin Farrell is completely unrecognizable as the Penguin and just one of the parts of this movie that was so much fun. Take it easy, sweetheart. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm, I mean, seriously, I, I, I've talked to people about the idea of, this isn't the first time it's been done, but the idea of casting a man or a woman and then putting enough makeup and prosthetics on them and, and allowing them to act in a way that you go... You cast someone so that you never know it's that person that you cast. Yes. And I, mm-hmm. what I appreciate about that is oftentimes, you know, you cast certain actors so that they'll be themselves. There's not really any acting involved. You're like, you get to a point where it's mm-hmm. like you cast Brad Pitt to be Brad Pitt. You cast Tom Hanks to be Tom Hanks. You know, it, it, you cast Colin Farrell... To do something, it, because unless you're one of us, sit in that movie theater with someone who hasn't been following the press and try to tell them afterwards, yeah, Colin Farrell's in this movie, they'd call you a liar. And that's what I did at first when my husband goes, that's Colin Farrell. I was like, no, it's not. But it apparently it is. But I, I definitely, upon first looking at him and hearing the way he portrayed the Penguin, thought it was joe pesci with more prosthetics on um then possibly robert de niro and then you know sure enough it's colin farrell and actually i wore my colin farrell shirt today nice i think you know he's uh i think he's just really good in this role Um, i think the fact that he was willing to completely disappear into the role was phenomenal um and and not be recognizable you know, I think that shows the what he as an actor is willing to do for the craft, which is awesome. Um, there are very few actors I feel like that do that anymore. They just so many of them. It is them playing versions of themselves. <clears throat> Ryan Reynolds, um, and mm-hmm. this is this is acting in its highest form. You know, it, it's kind of like. The way in which, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't necessarily have to put on make it to become kind of almost unrecognizable in the roles that he'll play. And, you know, this was fun because this movie kind of gives us the origin story of the Penguin will know, right? Um, And I think that the fact that this movie is, one, able to basically be the 
one Batman movie that's actually truly about Batman, but at the same time, service all of the villains so well is phenomenal. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for myself, and I think, and I'm sure everybody here, it's like, I'm super excited, the thought that we'll see more of this Penguin. Well, and he, you were right that he definitely, he and the Riddler, I'm glad that they made sure that they still brought an element of humor to this movie, even though everything is so dark. And that's kind of my thing anyway. Dark humor is how I deal with tough stuff in life anyway. So this is right up my alley. But um, I love that they have the scene with him arguing about, don't you know Spanish better than that? And even having him tied what? up in a way that he has to <laughs> yes. waddle like a penguin. I was like, yes, yes, that. <laughs> and that he's just kind of at the stage where he's just starting to get more of a hold on things. And he's, you know, in the midst of being kind of this club runner, but you think maybe he could also have been the rat. Like, he seems like he's not quite complete villain yet. He could go both directions with it at this point, And I like that. Well, and also, like, when he discovers that Falcone is the rat and he's like, Oh, you dead. Oh, like, like he turns on his mm-hmm. butt and, and, and Falcon's like, Oh, you think you're a big man now? Yeah, I am. It's like, he suddenly got like this burst of confidence. Like, <laughs> Oh, Oh, you ratted out Maroney. No, no, that's not going to happen. But like, it, 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 it like gives him the sense of, no, I can run things. And there's that shot that we saw in one of the trailers, but you see at the end of the movie where he's like standing up in Maroney's penthouse apartment, whatever he's got above the iceberg lounge. And all I see on Penguin's face is this idea of this is all mine now. Like you just you just see that in his eyes that he just looks at the city and goes, come, come to Penguin. And I, I I loved that, but then also him being just smarmy, like when he's when Batman's, I mean, he's staring Batman down and being like, "Dude, what you know? Hey, Mister Vengeance, you know what you got?" Even when he smashes him into a window, and he's like, "I don't know who that girl is." Ask his wife, and the Batman just looks at him and goes, "Too soon," and it's just like, it's the it's like oh, I don't yeah. give a rat's, you know what, and. I I love that from a mob boss penguin. So basically what you're saying is when he was looking out over the city, though, someone was telling him in his head, you see that? Everything <laughs> the light touches yeah. is your kingdom. Oh, Simba. You've come into your own. I was actually thinking that, Christy, and I'm so glad you said that. That's so funny. So, Christy, I know, obviously, Catwoman's your favorite character. And so how do you mm-hmm. think that Zoe Kravitz and, you know, kind of her role in this film, how does that all work for you? Since I knew probably coming in, this was one of the parts of the movie you would be looking at the most closely. Yeah, it it's always same thing as with a new Batman. It's interesting getting to know a new Catwoman. And I had never seen Zoe in any kind of acting role. So I didn't know what to expect with her. Um, obviously, she had the right look but I just didn't know if she would be able to stand on her own and give some real depth to Catwoman as a character. And I felt like she really did. I think that the biggest things that she had going for her in this movie, um, she showed a lot of really great 
emotion and torment from losing her best friend, Ani. Um, I love that she happened to have the recording of the moment that Ani was killed and then actually plays it for Batman. And then they end up publicizing it later that it's like, she's trying to show him, no, I'm justified in how I feel. <laughs> this is not just, I've taken it a little too far. I, I heard my friend die. No, that's not cool. Um, she is showing just like in the comics that basically Catwoman and Batman are very similar um, and both feel very lonely in the masks that they wear. But she also is a little bit more sinister than him and willing to go further than he is as far as the violence toward people and how he enacts vengeance. Um, she's willing to kill people. And she straight up kicks the one guy off of the balcony and Batman has to save him. Um, so I like that they show that side from the comics as well, that she's not all good, but she's not all bad. Yeah, they she's not a villain. She was much more of an antihero in this movie. And also another point, and this is not original to me because I've heard a lot of people make it, but she's also such an equal to Batman in this movie she she doesn't have to get rescued by him even times that he does save her well then she comes she turns right back around and saves him and then you know like their entire final scene as they're driving side by side on their motorcycles going through the graveyard right before splitting off and literally going their separate ways uh which was just so like Casablanca, she disappears out into the mist in his rearview mirror. I loved that. And also, they're both just beautiful people. And it, it, you know, it, it doesn't hurt that they just had this amazing chemistry, even though I think, Christy, you mentioned earlier, they didn't, and they didn't lean into the romance part of it. Like, there's chemistry there, there's sexual energy there. But Batman's all about the mission. He ain't got he ain't got time for that. As much as ain't nobody ain't got nobody time got for time that. for that. But she trying, <laughs> she trying real hard. I, I especially think of that scene right before she goes undercover in the forty four below, and he's like staring into her eyes, and she's like thinking they have a moment, and he just is like checking the contact list and going, no, they're good. Yeah, I think she's very good in this movie. Um, I think that the the way that they portray her in this movie feels so consistent with so many of the comic portrayals that we get of her. Um, and she is a character, I think, who who does kind of want to be able to be more like Batman. She just can't quite make it there. She just can't quite bring herself to, to be like that. And a lot of her life has led her down a much more cynical road. And we can tell that, obviously, too, when she's talking about, you know, let's go bump off some hedge fund types, you know. And, and so I I just I think she did a fantastic job. And I'll, I'll be really interested to see whether or not, you know, they try to bring her back at all in the in a second movie or if this is just one of those things where this is part of Bruce's growth. You know, like he's had this experience and now this will be a stepping stone 
to go to the next place. And Zoe Kravitz was great, you know, having seen her in the Fantastic Beast movies. You know, um, I enjoyed her there in in the second one, um, and so I was, was excited to see her here. And I think she does a fantastic job. Great physicality as the character. You know, uh, excellent fight scenes there, specifically with Batman. Um, I I think she was wonderful. So, and you know, I think on top of that, Jeffrey Wright. I mean, I think. Not enough will get made of how good he is as Gordon, and a specifically, and one of the things you were bringing up, Scott, is before we even started recording, was this movie has some fun humor in it. And he, specifically, is the character who I think brings that humor to light in that kind of dark, you know, like, oh, this guy's hilarious. And, you know, and his his uncomfortableness sometimes with the the brutality that he's faced with and of course he's using dark humor to get over it and i i love 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 him as an actor anyway but he was just perfect as gordon well i love the fact that when the movie starts it is so crystal clear that these two have a relationship these two have been working together for 2 years and it's amazing to have two actors act in a scene and you just feel it. You feel the fact that, yeah, they've been they've been in the trenches for two years trying to do their best. I love the fact that he calls him, hey, man, like through like five or six times throughout the movie. Like there's like this this this. This is as much of a bromance as we've ever gotten cinematically between Batman and Gordon. And I love it. And like when they're walking in to get the mayor's car and he's like, you know, like, you trust me? I've been with you two years, man. I don't even know who you are. And then later on, when they go to the orphanage at the old Wayne Manor and Batman's like, no guns. That's your thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> there's just that sense of you do you i'll do me we're good here and 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 just that relationship that those two have throughout like like gordon is going to go to bat for him every single time and that leads to one of my favorite scenes right after the da gets blown up and batman's in the police station and and, Gor- and Gordon's like, yes. I could talk to him. I could talk to him. And as soon as everyone clears out, he just has that look on his face. He just goes, I'm going to need you to punch me in the face. <laughs> and just like the whole scene of them two just working together, like totally laying out a plan, but acting in a way to portray this we're at odds right now. I, and it even at least the end, like when he like socks him. And then when they get back to the bat, it was like, you know, you could have pulled that punch. I did. <laughs> just, I love that relationship between those two. It is, in my opinion, the best cinematic pairing of a Batman and Gordon because they feel like they feel like they work together. They feel like work buddies. And the closest we got to that was Nolan with Bale and Oldman, but they never felt a camaraderie like you feel between Jeffrey Wright and Robert Pattinson. 
Yeah, that was my favorite scene of the two of them, too, and brought a little humor back. Um, I had seen Jeffrey Wright, I will say, um, only in Westworld and only here and there. But I gathered what was going on and I saw the big reveal that came with him. And um, yeah, he can play anything as far as I'm concerned. And I fully believed in him doing this role. And I do think that they had such banter between the two of them. Um, it just worked. And I, I think that he also gives a different feel to Gordon that you don't get with other people that have portrayed him. You know, I, I love that he's kind of reluctant to do what he does um, and that somehow he's feeling like, I don't know why everyone else in the city that I work with is dying and he hasn't targeted me yet. I feel like I'm a pretty easy target. And Batman's like, because you're not corrupt, you're actually a good person. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. they love each other. Yes, that, that, <laughs> that's what I feel between these two. And it was amazing that you felt that from the very first scene when they walk into the mayor's murder scene. Like, I, I didn't need the entire movie mm-hmm. to build up that relationship. They had worked it out and you felt it as soon as you saw the two of them together on screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also I think one of the things that's beautiful is that it really did feel like Gordon himself has felt alone on an island in Gotham, even in the police mm-hmm. department. And he is he has befriended this vigilante because this vigilante has been helping him do things that he can't get done in the police department. That's the feeling that I got too, you know. Um, and I, you know, it's very I think. It's very classic for Batman that that's the case that Gordon and Batman have that type of relationship where they trust each other because there are very few people in Gotham to trust. And these are two Mm -hmm. men who have recognized that they are men trying to do the right thing from different angles. Uh, And I think that's the thing that makes that work. And, you know, I... I think one of the things that it also really works in this movie, and I'm wondering if you guys feel the same, but in all honesty, the look and the feel of this movie with Gotham and then the design work in general, I think this might be the most successful Batman movie I've ever seen, minus the bits we got in Snyder's films, with especially a Gotham that feels like a real place and not just, oh, that's Chicago. Like, this feels like its own place. And it's the noir feel that we get. It's the Gotham architecture that we get because they actually went to places in Europe to that have that type of architecture, merged it with places like, you know, Chicago and that kind of stuff and then created a place that just it feels not like oh oh well that's just Chicago no this feels like Mm -hmm. Gotham and I think that's really important because Gotham itself is its own character in Batman and so I love the look and the feel of this film yeah I'm with you a thousand percent Uh, I'm a huge fan of gothic architecture in general. I just think that it's so intricate and 
um, difficult to put together, that it's amazing to me. And so I love that they really embraced that in this version of Gotham. Um, because, you know, like you were saying, it, Gotham is its own character. And in movies like Batman 89, it was more exaggerated. You know, it's supposed to look like this place that's just completely insane and not at all more grounded. And this was a grounded version of Gotham that actually felt like a place you could see being um, instead of this super exaggerated version, like we might remember from uh, how they developed the park at Six Flags. <laughs> There's toxic waste everywhere. Well, and, and that's... and. Th- that's what I felt about the design of Gotham because I mean when you go to Liverpool, when you go to Glasgow and you and you just meld like because like you said, you're not in the dark night where you go that's Chicago. But you're not in Batman 89 where you go that's a back lot. You know, it <laughs> and I love the design of Gotham in Batman 89 because that feels like it came out of a comic book, but it also doesn't feel like Yeah. It's real, but Chicago feels too real and not like I'm in Gotham. Like, I, I don't feel it's like it. it's like one was too comic book and one was too real. And this one felt like the Goldilocks rule. It's just right. And it mm-hmm. does. It feels like a real place without looking like a real place. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think. That all of that design work, too, just with the way that they designed the suit and, you know, the creation of this bat cave and the Batmobile, the Batmobile, all of these things feel very lived in and used and like something that you could actually see in existence. And I think that's something that to me really, again, that that matters in 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 the fact that. This movie is very consistent in its tone and its feel. Um, and so all of those design elements with the suit and the Batmobile and, and all the gadgets that he's using all feel like they work perfectly within the same universe. But I, but I think to a point that it feels real while being hyper real. Like it's mm-hmm. still it's it, it's not grounded like Nolan was grounded. But yet it still feels too fantastical to be real. Mm-hmm. And I like mm-hmm. I like that fine line. I like that fine line where like I can believe in the reality that you are presenting to me, yet completely understanding that there is no way on God's green earth that this actually like exists. Yes. And that's just mm-hmm. and it's like it's that suspension of disbelief that you're not asking too much of me to suspend because you've made it plausible enough. I think that's it. It's plausible without being realistic. And I like mm-hmm. that. Like I'm watching the Batmobile and I love the fact that Batmobile looks like a car. It's not a tank. It's not a military vehicle. Mm-hmm. It's it's also not stylistically cool looking, but impractical as I'll get out. You know, it mm-hmm. just looks like, as my wife put it, and I I love giving my wife credit for this. She said that was a shot a sawed off shotgun version of a muscle car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, 
Exactly. I mean, it has, you know, this um, very old fashioned model they use. It looks like a GTO or maybe something like that. Um, I didn't find that info exactly, but um, they made some modern modifications to it to make it then more fantastical, like this engine that blows blue flames out of it or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still got that Batmobile feel to it, but it's not as crazy as, you know, like you were saying, the the other models that we've had that are like a tank and shoot things out of them and become a bike and, you know, things like that. And I like that the bike that he rides, the motorcycle, is like a dirt bike. Mm-hmm. Like, it looks like this cheap thing. It's not at all like... He he does drive a fancier one later in the movie with the wheels similar to Bat- Nolan's Batman, but initially he's only riding this little dirt bike thing. And I love that, that lived-in feel of like, maybe even too, he's losing money, and so he's having to go with the cheaper stuff. Or this stuff. is what he's spending all his money on, is, you know, building this stuff, and then he's upgrading it. Like, he's not he's not building it from scratch. Mm-hmm. He's retrofitting old stuff because like, I love it how they tease the Batmobile. Like it's in the Batcave under a sheet and yet he's, and yet he's got the car parts everywhere. Like there's the timing belt and Mm -hmm. there's the, and there's like a valve over there. And it's like, he's still working on it and he's piecing it together. Cause like you said earlier, Christy, he doesn't see the value in being Bruce Wayne. I I would imagine he even when he's awake and not being Batman, he's spending every waking minute down in the Batcave, probably tooling around on that car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I think it's one of the things too that um, I really also liked about uh, just the way the movie is shot and the cinematography of it. I think it's it's gorgeous. It's very consistent. The moodiness, the rain. I think it all really helps you feel like you're in this foreboding place that, you know, the only time that there are only a couple times where we really see it where it's not raining. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's most noticeable, I think, at the end of the film, you know, when they're they're on top of the stadium. Uh, and it really brings it home that, you know, the dawn is broken, the light has broken through, and that hopefully the city can change. And I mean, there's just some gorgeous, gorgeous shots in this this film. It's love, 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 love. Well, when you told me that the guy who was the cinematographer on Dune was going to be the cinematographer on the Batman, um, I, I, I couldn't get my tongue off the floor. It was like, oh, really? <laughs> It's that guy, cause um that man that man don't miss. What can I, what can I say? Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg Frazier get 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 all the work because you know how to use a camera, my man. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I thought that the way that he did the scene, in particular with the gunshots in the tunnel <sighs> in the dark, um, that came across like a strobe light. Which I've always thought strobe lights were crazy because if you're actually, you know, if that's the only light, it is almost like time stands still every time the light goes out, you know? And and so I loved that effect of putting the fight to the little flashes. Um, 
And even in um, the action, the way the action and the cinematography paired together, that oh, car yes. chase was awesome. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the fact that you never got like the cliche traditional Hollywood, like big overshot and you saw the cars like weaving in and out. Tra- no, you freaking stuck the camera right. on like the footboard of the car, you know, facing the rear view. So you're like half the screen is taken up by the rear wheels of like Penguin's Honda Civic. And as you're just watching the Batmobile like Jaws coming after him, and, you know, with that Michael Giacchino score just pounding away going, he's going to get you. Mm-hmm. And then thinking that the penguin has actually won and he's just like totally into it like ah, i finally got you and then you just see it come out of the fire i mean come on isn't that what every guy in particular wants from an action movie it's like and then out of nothing he comes back (laughs) yes with with obviously with a shock absorb system that can handle the landing like that and and how everything lined up for him to exactly, have a ramp in the first yes. place. See, that's what I'm talking about. I don't care that it doesn't actually make sense because it worked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I 100% agree with you. And I think that's the thing that really helps. And you brought this up, obviously, there, Scott, with the idea of the music. And, you know, obviously we have... Batman themes uh, from Danny Elfman and, of course, Hans Zimmer. Uh, and I, I was really interested in the fact that this doesn't sound all that dissimilar from what Zimmer did. It's just a slightly different cadence, but it's definitely similar in the sense that they're both very driving. Like, it's it just driving simple notes repetitively and i felt like what they do here with the music was pretty perfect because the music has a lot of like little nuance in it it's not super loud a lot of the time and then you get to those big action moments and it just comes alive um and it's not super complicated but it drives home the point that batman is driven by one thing and it's not complicated it's vengeance and this you know, the music sounds like vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to add, since, you know, I know I'm not usually the music person, um, but in this one, I liked the additions of other pieces of music as well. Like I mentioned, the Ave Maria being used as a creepy foreboding thing um, because it was a callback to the filming of Thomas Wayne's speech where he had a choir that was singing Ave Maria beside him. Um they also had it at the funeral, but I like also that they had this use of the piano in particular. I don't know if you notice the way that the keyboard is played here. It, they use every single key. Like they go to the very deepest octave key on a piano um, keyboard. And I love that. And it, it it actually brought back memories of like me as a kid playing on the piano at my grandparents' house and thinking that the deepest note was the cool one. <laughs> well, and what I loved about it was actually for me, what Giacchino did felt like this wonderful marriage. I, my, my Goldilocks rule is popping out again because it was like 
You had that driving score like Zimmer, but yet it would have these moments of symphony like Elfman would do or like Shirley mm-hmm. Walker would do on the animated series where it felt like an yeah, orchestra yeah. was it was an orchestra but but it sounded orchestral yep. in a way that I'm used to having an Elfman or a Walker score do and to the point that you know that Batman theme could be played in a slow menacing way where it was just the Dun, 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 dun. And you're like, oh, crap, what's about to happen? Or you could do that scene mm-hmm. in the third act at Gotham Square Gardens where he blows the skylight apart mm-hmm. and comes flying down like the freaking Batman. And all of a sudden it's dun, 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 dun. It's like, oh, cool, action music now. And and that's the beauty of a good theme is that you can play it slow. You can play it mid. You can play it fast. You can orchestrate it. And it's just the character. Like you hear the music and you're like, that's the GD Batman coming for you. And it's just great. But then yes. you get like the Riddler. And I love the fact that listening to the I listened to the soundtrack for the whole week leading up to the movie mm-hmm. and yeah, the use same. of strings in the Riddler's theme to sound like a horror movie monster. And the fact there was that choir that until I saw the movie, I didn't piece it together that he basically did a variation of Ave Maria inside of the Riddler's theme. Uh, no, like there's like, there's one scene in particular that like they're playing like I think it's I think it's when he's singing Ave Maria and then it goes into the Riddler theme and it's almost like the music didn't mm-hmm. stop and mm-hmm. and then you do something like Catwoman's theme that just sounds like sex you know in musical form because she's got that femme fatale you know sometimes sounds like the Godfather other people have said kind of sounds James Bond. But it just mm-hmm. it's like that old timey forties. I almost thought of bringing it back to Michelle Pfeiffer. I almost felt like the fabulous Baker Boys, you know, and she's you know being this lounge singer in a way that just sounded classic and seductive, and it just played into that noir feel of the movie. And Jacino, I mean. I've loved, I mean, I, I watched Alias when he used to score Alias for the Jennifer Gardner mm-hmm. TV show. And, but I remember the first time he did a movie score that really stuck with me was when he did the first Incredibles movie. And I was like, and I'm like, yeah. oh, I like this guy. I like this guy a lot. And I have followed him and he's just been doing solid work for years. And I feel like the Batman is like just this big payoff of him going, I've, uh, I've done Star Trek, I've done Star Wars, I've done Spider-Man, now I'm going to do the Batman. And I just went, golf clap, yeah. just, just just golf clap yeah. through this entire movie because he just sets a mood and he can play the low moments, the high moments, the scary moments, the action moments, the sexy moments, it, it, and it all just works. And the soundtrack, to its credit, is a score that you want to listen to just as a piece of music, even apart from the movie. And yet I can listen to it after watching the movie and going, I literally can play the movie in my head, listening to the score. Yeah. Yep. No, I 100% agree with you. I think this is 
you know, he's an interesting composer because sometimes I really, really love his work. And then there have been other times where I'm just like, I I just don't connect with that as much. It, it, there's something about it I just don't love. But, you know, I think here he he put so much thought into creating the audio universe of the Batman. And what I love about that is that so much of this score is not over the top. It is like subtle. And there's all of these little things happening in the score that are about the underbelly of all of these characters. And the music helps bring them to life and it brings the scenes to life in that way. And so it's enjoyable in the film and out of the film, like you said, Scott, which to me is what makes the most successful scores. There are few scores that are like, okay, that really only works in the movie because it really makes the movie. But I don't really want to listen to that, you know, after the movie by itself. I mean, this is just one of those scores that I can listen to both. Uh, I enjoy it in the film and I enjoy it out of the film. And it's it's wonderful. So. Again, this is a place where I'm very excited to continue to see this partnership work, hopefully with the Batman 2. Maybe they'll just call it the Batman 2. Um, so uh, who knows? But we could, I mean, this is one of those films, like it, it's it's obviously a three-hour movie, and we could probably talk about the movie for three hours and more. But I'm really interested to see, because I feel like we've had pretty much nothing but praise for the film. So. Where does that leave you then with your ratings for the Batman, Scott? Um, my ratings puts the Batman at five psychotic Hallmark cards out of five. Fantastic. Fantastic. What about you, Christine? Mm-hmm. I am almost the same. I would say there were some things, just little things that didn't um, quite work for me as well, but I still give it a four and a half out of five Rat mazes. Ooh, ooh, terrifying. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say I am with Scott. This is five out of five thumb drives. Uh, so it nice. is. I, I try this. I want to. Bef- yeah, before we get there, like uh, before we just get out of here, I do have to ask you, is this the most successful Batman movie from start to finish? In the first of a series that you've seen. Because to me, this feels like the most successful introduction of a new version of Batman that I've ever seen, even over Nolan's Batman Begins. I I don't know how do you how do you guys feel about that? I for me, I, I think it's unfair to compare it to Batman Begins only because those movie those two movies, the Batman Begins and the Batman are doing two different things. I mean, Batman Begins is one of the most successful origin films ever made. I I mean, that movie nails we're going to build Batman from the ground up. And it is masterful in what it does. And this film is a year two Batman. We're not trying to build him up. We're just trying to tell you a 
adventure in the early days of Batman while he's still trying to figure out what it means to be the Batman. And what Batman begins and um, the Batman both share is that there are excellent Batman movies. I mean, Batman Begins, while there's a lot of Bruce Wayne, I think that's some, what some people would argue is that it, it, it's kind of more of a Bruce Wayne film than it is a Batman films at times. But I still think both of them put an emphasis on that character. And it's not like other Batman films that then they become more about the villain than they become about Batman. And I feel like the two movies that do that the most are Batman Begins and the Batman. I still give it to the Batman for me personally, only because I'm also someone who I still, I understand the argument that Batman begins is a better Batman movie than said like the dark Knight, but I still think that the dark Knight being a better film than Batman begins for me personally is why I hold the dark Knight above Batman begins. And then the Batman kind of does the thing I would love, which is it does an incredible job of being a film while also fully committing to being a Batman movie. And I feel like that's yeah, why I yeah. give it to the Batman for me personally. I, I, I would, hmm, I don't know. For me, I think that Batman Begins just edges it out a little bit for me. Just because, um, and I did want to say this earlier and forgot, but I, although I think that this is the best Riddler we've ever seen, the thing that bothered me was that he was so measured in his responses that I was sitting there going, oh my God, spit it out already. So that bothered me. Um, but I'm sure to you guys that sounds Nothing, ridiculous. Hey, it's all subjective. Nothing sounds ridiculous to me. It, it, it you, you feel you, Christy. <laughs> you feel you. Thank you. Thank um, you. I, I think that when it came to introducing us to a new Batman this movie to me has the edge because it is about Batman before anything else. And um, I think the other thing that makes that happen is that I feel like this is the most successful version of Gotham City that's been introduced to us on screen. Um, this all feels like it came, like my wife said, it just feels like it was ripped from the comics. She hasn't read any of the comics, mm -hmm. but for her to be able to say that the city had a, a gothic of enough feel for us to feel like it's it's Gotham City. We're spending all of this time dealing with who Batman is and, and you know, is Batman enough? You know, I, I just everything is about this character. And exploring this character, his city, his his relationships, yeah, it just, I just found it to be so successful, and I loved it. And 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 like Reeves, you know, um, first foray into the Apes films, it made me just anticipate what he would do next. I'm right there. I'm just anticipating what he's going to do next with this character. So, well, Scott, thank you so much for, for joining us here to talk about the Batman. You know, I know you've uh, gotten a chance to do that on a lot of different podcasts, but we're always excited to be able to have you back. So let people know where they can catch up with you and see what else you've got going on. Well, of course you can find me on Twitter at Scott DC 27. 
You can find my podcast, the DC Squadcast, wherever podcasts can be found. Our latest episode, of course, is our review of The Batman. Um, we're also on Vero, Facebook, and YouTube with the entire network of shows at squadcastmedia.com. You can also find me every Sunday night at 9 Central over at the Film Junkie YouTube channel, where I am the regular co-host of Batman the Fanimated Stream as we talk about every episode of Batman the Animated Series in production order. Uh, our upcoming episode will actually, funny enough, be If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Rich? The introduction of the Riddler into the animated series. That's awesome, man. Uh, and, of course, you can find me as well at Bespin Bell on Instagram and Twitter. And um, I think that's awesome about covering the animated series. I need to find that because um, I love that show. But Otherwise, for me, when I'm not here on 602 Club, I also do a show with my friends Amanda and Teresa called Sabers and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. So I hope you'll check that out on all your social media networks as well called Sabers and Spells. And, of course, I am all over the place on social media under the name MattRushing02, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, all of those places. You can find me here on the network, of course, inside the 602 Club feed with the bonus shows I do with John Mills. One is Snyder Cuts, which I think you like there, Scott, um, as well as the fact that uh, we're doing uh, a Marvel rewatch called Assembling Avengers, going through one film at a time, kind of looking at it minus the hype, which has been a lot of fun. You can also find me here on the network doing a bunch of different shows. One is called The Orb, the next is Warp 5, and then, of course, over on Literary Treks, the Orbs about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise, and Literary Treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. And look for our Star Trek card show coming back very soon as we'll be talking about the new season there. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, you can find me doing Outpost. Did that with Drea Kaufman. We talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And last but not least, John Mills talking star wars with me over on aggressive negotiations but thank you so much for joining us and i have a thing about strays (laughs) 